Philippians 3 and uh, on your way in you would have been giving would have been given two handouts uh, one of them's got various songs on it uh, and the other one has got an outline uh, of where we're going today so it might be helpful to have that uh, if you want a pencil there are pencils at the uh, uh, welcome desk uh, feel free to get up and get one um, otherwise the outline is useful but essential is uh, the scriptures open in front of you Philippians uh, chapter 3 verses 1 to 11 on page 1181 let me lead us in prayer Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you give us. Thank you that uh, you have caused the Apostle Paul to write down these things for us. And thank you that your spirit, uh, who is so moving uh, to write, continues to work in our hearts, to open our hearts to your word. And we pray now that uh, he will be doing that, uh, that we will respond to you rightly, and appreciate Jesus more and more. As we've been going through the book of Philippians thus far, the letter has been very positive, hasn't it? Paul is full of thanksgiving uh, for his partnership with the Philippian church. There was a great warmth, a great care, a great concern between them. Even when Paul was speaking about his problems at Rome, uh, when it, about people preaching Christ out of false motives to stir up trouble for him, he, he wasn't really bothered by them. As long as they were preaching Christ, he was happy. But here at the beginning of chapter 3, he begins to deal with a different set of opponents. And this time, he comes out really strongly. He has some really severe say. And he does not shy away from saying that. Yet he starts this chapter with really positive words. He says, beginning with verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the world. Now, there's an old joke. This is for Christine. There's an old joke that goes, What does a preacher mean when he says, finally? And the answer is, absolutely nothing. Now, you might think, well, it's strange saying finally here, at the beginning of chapter 3, when he's got two chapters to go, which is halfway through his letter. Right? But the word actually finally there can also be so then, or well then. And I think that's probably what, he's, what, what, the, uh, what the translation should be, given where it is in the book. But the second part of the sentence is the really important one. It is, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Notice that he doesn't just say rejoice. It's not, I don't see a big smile on your face today, Philippians. Come on, give us a big smile. And it's not even saying, I don't see a big smile on your face today, Philippians. We have a big smile in the Lord. As if adding the Lord to the front of the end of something makes it not right. No, Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. That is, he wants them to rejoice in Jesus. He wants Jesus to be the one they delight in. He wants Jesus to be the focus of their thanksgiving. He wants Jesus to be the focus of their praise. He wants Jesus to be the source of their joy. 
He wants them to appreciate, to treasure, to enjoy, to take pleasure in, to celebrate who Jesus is and what he has done for them. He wants them to rejoice in him and therefore prize him above everything else. You see that? But, there is a problem. A danger that would rob them of their joy in Christ. And Paul wanted to warn them about this threat. And it's something, actually, it's something he warned them about before. He, 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 it's such a deadly threat. He's not going to tire of warning them again and again. He says so in the second half of verse 1, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. He's trying to protect them from something. And this threat that he's trying to protect them from, you see, comes from a group of people that we call the Judaizers. See, the Judaizers would have come to churches that Paul had founded and said something like this. You know that guy, Paul, who told you the gospel? He told you you need to believe in Christ in order to be saved, didn't he? He said if you trust him as your saviour, you receive him as your lord and your king, then you will be right with God. And, well, yeah, that's kind of true. But he hasn't given you the whole story. You know he preaches from the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, the Hebrew Scriptures tell us to follow the law that God gave Moses. And there are many things God wants us to do there. He's given them, as, given them to us in the law. And you can't hope to be saved unless you keep the law. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. We quite agree with Paul. But Jesus, after all, is the Jewish Messiah. And if you want to follow him as your Messiah, you need to be part of the Jewish people. And the sign of being part of the Jewish people that God gave in his law is circumcision. So if you want to be saved, then trusting in Jesus is not enough. You also need to be circumcised and go on to keep the law. Okay? So, let's put some things right in the church. Now, we'll go back to basics. Start with organize some circumcisions. Make sure that you're all properly Jewish and so properly Christian. Sounds quite reasonable, doesn't it? What does Paul say? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out. Do you sense Paul's anger here? Do you sense God's anger behind Paul's for those who distort his gospel? Those are dogs. No. Jews hate dogs. What do you, what do you think of dogs? Okay. You and I think of like little, cute puppies and doggies like that. When the Jews thought of dogs, they thought of like this. You took the heart one. Is anyone on the heart one? Thank you very much. That is filthy, mangy animals feeding on garbage. And dogs is a term that they use for Gentiles who are unclean. And what is called them? He reverses the insult. He calls these Judaizers dogs, which is what they call the Gentiles. Because 
He's saying that spiritually they are Gentiles. They are far away from God. They are evil doers, he says. They are mutilators. What they're trying to promote is, in God's eyes, more akin to the mutilation, pagan practices of the Old Testament and forbidden people to get involved in than, than, the, than the Old Testament circumcision that God had given. What they were teaching was not a true Old Testament religion at all. They were the circumcised in body but uncircumcised in heart that Jeremiah spoke about in our, in our Old Testament religion. Their religion was more like paganism than And so he insults them three times by saying exactly what it is. Now, why do you think Paul is so angry when it comes to these things? When people preach the gospel out of false motives to stir up trouble for him, he didn't worry. Why is he getting so uptight about these people now? It's because they were preaching a false gospel. And a false gospel can never save. Not only does it not save, it draws away people from the true gospel, which does save. But that's the, what was so bad about what they were saying? Surely, surely it's okay. They want people to believe in Jesus. They just add some other stuff to it. But you see, friends, that is the problem. When you add to the gospel, you destroy it. These guys were saying that that trusting in Jesus is not enough to be saved. You have to do something else as well. For them it's, it's being circumcised. Jesus' death is not enough. Faith in Jesus is not enough. You have to add something on top. And we call that gospel plus. Gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, plus something else like circumcision, will get you no gospel at all. If you add anything to the gospel, you actually take away from it. Because the moment you say that something else other than faith in Christ the Lord is necessary for salvation, you have made it contingent upon your work. To have faith in Christ means to trust in Christ alone to save Salvation comes as a gift from God for those who trust in Jesus and rely on Him to take away their sins. If you add to this gift, you rub it of its power because it's no longer in it. If you add circumcision as a requirement for salvation, you are saying you can contribute to your salvation by what you do. And you are actually saying the death of Jesus, received in the open hands of him, is not enough to come away your sins. You've got to add something else. And that is wrong. It is a false gospel. And a false gospel cannot save. A false gospel will lead people to hell. And that is very serious. If you add to the work of Christ, you diminish the work of Christ. You rob Christ of His glory. 
It is no longer Christ alone that people rely on for salvation. And you lose your appreciation of this. Christ has done everything for us to be saved. And if we add to his work, we will not appreciate it. And we will not rejoice in it. Our joy remains in peace. Maybe our own religious contribution to salvation, our own morality, something else altogether perhaps. But it will not be in the Lord. For it's only when we know that Jesus has done everything for us, when we fully rely on Him, when we fully appreciate His finished work on our behalf, that the focus of our joy rests upon Him. And so the false teachers prey on God's flock when they try and entice the church with a false gospel, when they seek to add circumcision or anything else to faith in Christ for salvation, then in love God's people must be angry. Paul was furious with the false teachers because he loved the Philippine church. He cared for them, did not want them to be led astray. He wanted them to rejoice in the Lord. I haven't met anyone who says you have to be circumcised and keep the Lord knows to be saved. I know there are those who say that. Our website's not this on the internet. But Judaizing is only one form of gospel classes. Where do we see possible past variants on you? I've people who had all kinds of things. And people say you have to speak in tongues in order to say. They say you can't speak in tongues. You say you have to speak in tongues in order to say there is possible past. So I've met some people who say you have to get that. In a certain way, in order to be saved. Trusting Jesus is not enough, you have to get baptized as well. And that is not enough, you have to do it by full immersion. And if that is not enough, you have to be in my denomination in order to be saved. Not against baptism, not against full immersion, not against nominations. Make that a requirement for salvation. You've got lost with sickness. Trusting in Jesus is not enough. You've got to come to sight to the same. Trust no one says that. All kinds of things you have. Baptism, confirmation, Lord's Supper, coming to church each week, having a daily quiet time, Going to cell group, doing more college exams, class you can say, possibly preaching, all good things, helpful in their right place, helpful when they point you the gospel, are prerequisites to salvation. Salvation comes by trusting in the Lord Jesus who died for you. 
people rejoicing in their condemnation, people rejoicing in their Lord's Supper or in smack or in quiet times or in cell groups or in positive preaching or in more college or we want people rejoicing in the world. We want to have people's lives centered on him. Let's look out for gospel peace. Love each other in love to get angry and previously hurt. See, the Judaizers claim to be the ones who deserve the old Jewish religion. They claim continuity with Abraham and the people of Israel who were circumcised on God's instructions. I remember God, who is apostle, says they're more like the pagan Gentiles. Because the true Old Testament religion finds its fulfillment not in these two houses, but in Christ and his people. Verse 3. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It is the Christians, Paul says, who are the true circumcision, not the Jews, who are the covenant people of God, who worship God by the Spirit with all of our lives, who glory, who boast in the Lord Jesus Christ, who put all our confidence in Him, who put no confidence in the flesh in what, what we can do. Have our trust in Him. He is the one who is. He is our prime Rejoice in the Lord. We'll take a little break now. We're going to sing together about the wonderful thing one of the wonderful things the Lord has done for us in giving us His righteousness. We'll talk a bit about more about that later. Uh, but let's stand together. Jesus, your blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glory is so we rejoice in Jesus, His blood and His righteousness. Let's stand together.
and from the dust of death I arise to claim my home beyond the skies. And this shall be my home, that Jesus and his That is possible. When Paul saved the Philippines, you don't have to keep a mosaic law in order to be saved. You don't have to put this onto the Gentiles. He is not making excuses because he didn't want to or could not follow the law that the Judaizers were. Actually, he's been there, done that. It was, in fact, his whole life. That was what he used to rejoice in. If anyone had grounds to have confidence in the flesh, that, that would have been him. He had gone as far as anyone else in the Jewish religion of his day. We continue on in verses 4 to 6, uh, Philippians 3. Though I myself have co- reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law claims. If you want to see a kind of model Jew, the kind of person that the Judaizers were trying to get the Philippians to become like, then, well, look at Paul in his own way of living. His Jewish heritage was was immaculate, pristine pedigree, achievements in religion second to none. Hebrew of the Hebrews, he said, you cannot get a more Jewish person. Couldn't get a more radical, fanatical Jew either who persecuted the church. Couldn't get a more fastidious Jew who kept the law, at least externally, as carefully as anyone has ever done. He would have done the Judaizers proud. He would have rejoiced in his Jewish achievements. They would have been his glory and his boast. Then he says he changed his mind. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those things I counted as loss. Now last week I was very unfair when I said not so good things about lawyers. So I must apologize to lawyers and this week I'll tell you a story about accountants. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it seems there was once a successful partner in one of those big knockout There used to be six. Oh, it's kind of four of them. Kind of four of them? Six. Three. It keeps on going down. See, the accountants are worse than lawyers. It keeps on, you know, keep, uh, keep on crashing and disappearing. Anyway, you had one very successful partner had a peculiar habit. Every day he would go to his desk, lock the drawer, take out something, look at it, put it back in the drawer, lock the desk, and do his work. And very successful in his business. 
So one day when the partner had gone out of the city, one of the juniors decided, what makes him such a great auditor? Broke into the drawer, right to sleep, because he got inside. Take out the paper, and he read it. That's what it says. Left side is debit, right side is credit. Friends, when the Apostle Paul was following first century Judaism, when he put his confidence in the flesh, when he was doing all those religious and moralistic things in order to be set, he had his debits and credits around the wrong way. When he did now, he does his, when he did his, his spiritual profit and loss account, the things that he formerly put on the profit side, now he says, actually, that is on the loss side. What he formerly rejoiced in, now he says, actually, is worthless. What he thought was assets, now he says, actually, they were liabilities. He had it, he had it all wrong. Because he thought all those religious things were making him acceptable to God. But in reality, all they were doing was giving him false confidence in the flesh. And therefore blinding him to his desperate need for the true righteousness that comes from God. See friends, sometimes, often, usually, being religious and moral is dangerous because you think you're okay because of it. You make the mistake of thinking that a good Christian or a good Jew or a good Muslim or a good Hindu or a good Buddhist is okay, is good. But we're not really out. We're all rebels against God, we're all sinners, we all need Jesus' death to cover us. But any religion is dangerous because it lulls people into a false sense of security without you. If that is the case, it is not profit, it is loss. And Paul has come to realize that his whole life in Judaism, all his great religious achievements were a waste, a loss. Fancy. And it's not just those things. He says in verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of her in Christ. And about all those other things, well, that he hasn't listed. Maybe it's the affection of his family, his position in society, his inheritance, his job, the respect of the religious crowd, all the things that go together with his going forward and being this great leader in religion. And says, he says, I consider them, verse 8, I consider them rubbish. For his sake, for Christ's sake, in the middle of verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all these things and count them as rubbish. The word there can equally be translated down. In order that I might be See, he wasn't secretly longing for Judaism back again. 
anything else that he had in the past. He wasn't saying, oh, all this here, now I've lost it. Uh, it's all rubbish compared to compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. I have counted them as a loss that I might gain Christ. Jesus said, What is a prophet of man if he gains all world and loses his soul? If you have everything in the world on one side of your ledger and you have Christ on the other side then Christ by far outweighs it all whether it's your achievements in religion or whether it's all whatever else good things that you have Christ outweighs it all what did you what did you have to give up to follow Jesus what did you have to stop trusting him to be his disciple? What have you lost? What did you what did you sacrifice to belong to him? Don't feel sorry for yourself. Because you've got a darn good deal. There's no competition. Compared to knowing Christ, it is all worthless. All filthy. It is not worth rejoicing in those things. Knowing Christ far, far, far surpasses it all. And Paul says in the end of verse 8, I counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. He wants to be found in Christ, he says. He's talking about the last day. When God comes to judge the world. And he wants to be on that last day, as we sang just now, he wants to be someone who is in Christ. He wants to be someone who is united by faith with him. Because those who are united by faith with him, they have his righteousness. They have the right standing with God that comes through him. And he says, look, I don't want a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That would be terribly inevitable. I'd be good for the admiration of other people. It's not good enough for God. Keep the law adequately for God, unless, unless you're perfect, friends. The righteous by the law is not righteousness at all. Instead, he says, I want the righteousness, midway through verse 9, that comes through faith in Christ. Or a better translation there is actually probably comes through the faithfulness of Christ. In other words, it comes through the fidelity of Jesus Christ. His faithful obedience to the Father. His perfect life. That is the basis on the Paul on which Paul wants to approach God in the last day. That is the basis on Jesus only. Friends, that's surely that must be the same person as well, isn't it? You and I don't want a righteousness of our own. It comes from the law, from morality, from religion, from performance. That would be terribly inadequate. 
We want a righteousness that comes from the faithful, perfect life of Jesus Christ. A righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness that is a gift. Not something that we can earn or deserve. It's a gift that is received by faith. That is where the word faith comes in. The end of verse 9. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Faith is the instrument by which we receive this righteousness. It's the way we're united with Christ. And when by the grace of God we put our faith in Christ and we trust in Him, when we rely on Him for our right standing with God, instead of our own religion and morality, then in God's goodness He puts us in union with Christ. And in union with Christ, we have His righteousness. He has our sins and He's paid for them on the cross. We have His righteous standing with God. And on the day of judgment, why we want to be is in Christ. We want to front up to God on that day, not trusting in what we done, but trusting in Jesus. We want to be found in Christ on that day, friends. And if we are that, friends, it's far more precious than anything, anything, anything in the world. The righteousness of God's That's what we're saying just now, isn't it? Jesus, your blood and righteousness. My beauty and my glory. That's what we want to stand in. Mid flaming worlds, and when the judgment comes at the end of the age, in these array with joy shall I lift up. We can be confident when we approach God in the last day if we are having the righteousness of Christ. We can approach Him with joy. Oh, shall I stand on that great day? None condemn me, try to obey. Fully absorbed through Christ's name. Sin and fear and guilt and shame. Being united with Christ means being given his righteousness. And that is worth rejoicing. And when we have the righteousness of Christ, then we then we will know him. Verse 10, Paul says, He wants that righteousness that depends on faith that I might know him. The power of his resurrection and the share in his suffering. You see, knowing Christ, what does that look like? It means, it means knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering. When, when, when God raised Christ from the dead, he exerted incredible, miraculous power. And knowing Christ means knowing that resurrection power in our lives. Because we were once dead in sin. We were spiritually cut off from God. Dead. And what did God do? By the same resurrection power that He raised Jesus from the dead, He raised us. He did a miracle in our lives. He gave us a new life in Christ. And we have now got relationship with God. To know Christ is to know the power of His resurrection. That is something to rejoice in. And to know Christ is to share in His suffering. In fact, the word translated share there is that word we've talked about lots of times before in Philippians. It's the word for partnership or fellowship. You see, Jesus suffered for us and now we will suffer for Him. That is, that is partnership, that is fellowship. The sharing together. The fact that Christians suffer doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. 
doesn't mean they were separated from the love of God. No, no, they are partners with him. Sharing in what Christ has, has done before. No Christ to share in his sufferings. And to share in his sufferings at the end of verse 10 involves being like him in his death. What was he like in his death? Sacrificial, loving, humble, obedient, faithful, not retaliating. That is, the, that is the shape of his death. He wasn't literally being conformed to the shape of his death. That is how we have to be in the midst of suffering with Jesus. See, sometimes when we are persecuted or when we face opposition, we attempt to become bitter. Don't go that way. Remember that we are partners in the suffering of Christ. Let's be conformed to his death. Showing his character to those who persecute or oppose us. Experiencing something, just that little bit of suffering compared to his that is, that is part and parcel of knowing Christ. It's part and parcel of being Being with Christ is far better than anything else. So even as we suffer, we can rejoice in the Lord. But even that is not the end of the story. Knowing Christ, being partnered with him in suffering, leads to resurrection. So Paul says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the By any means possible, actually it's just, just somehow, somehow to attain the resurrection. Then he's not, he's not saying he's not sure whether he's going to be resurrected. Not sure how can be resurrected. As I say, the resurrection is a vague or uncertain thing. A number of times in Philippines he expresses confidence. So, what is it somehow here? I think it's somehow in terms of how to get there. The route. He doesn't know which route he will take to the resurrection. He doesn't know whether he'll be martyred and so share in Christ's sufferings before the resurrection in that way. He doesn't know if he'll keep on preaching and teaching for a long time more and then, then die of disease and then be raised. Or, and he hope Jesus will be still alive when he returns. Or a slightly different kind of resurrection or a transformation. The root is not, the root is not certain. But somehow, in some way, the road we don't, in the end we do. Oh, it's a partner with Jesus in his son, in his death. And he'll be a partner in the resurrection. That's the same for us. Those who are in Christ, righteous in Him, share His sufferings, share His resurrection. Therefore, we can rejoice in Him. So friends, what is God's word for us today? God wants us to Rejoice in the Lord. Our joy, our boast, our confidence, our hope must be in Jesus. Who He is. What He's done for us. It is a gospel centered The gospel is under threat for those who add to it. Gospel plus, so be vigilant and oppose it. 
in all its forms. Don't place your hope or confidence in anything else. What you can do, but in what Jesus has done. But if we trust Him as our Savior, know Him as our King, His righteousness is us. We are given new life by the resurrection power of God. We are partners with Him in suffering in this world. And we will be raised in glory from His us. All this is because of Jesus. His perfect life. His death was in the cross. His resurrection to glory. Therefore, brothers and sisters, prize Jesus about everything else. Rejoice in the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful Lord who lived that perfect life that we could never live, who died for us on the cross, the death that we deserve, and was raised and exalted as the King in God, who leads us and governs us now by the Spirit of His Lord, we thank you so much for Him. Help us to to truly trust in Him alone and not in ourselves in any way. And help us, Lord, to so appreciate what He's done for us, to so rely on His righteousness, not our own, that our boast and our joy and our glory will truly be in Him and Him alone. We pray that in all our lives, we will keep in this in our identities, in our thinking, in our relating, that it will be abundantly clear that the thing that we treasure and prize above all things, the thing that we rejoice in above all things, is Jesus. Help us to oppose those who would detract from His greatness. Your grace and glory. And help us to keep on trusting Him, to be willing to share in His sufferings along that path to resurrection God, and to show His likeness, conform to the, to, the, to the character of His death, that we who prize Him uh, would demonstrate Him in this world. We pray this in his name.